Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jake Hirschman, and excited to be with my co-hosts, Andy Dolich and Pat Gallagher. And today's episode is going to feature intangibles. Uh, We've got a fantastic author uh, with us today. And I will say first, uh, we are all, all our authors, but Joan by far completely blows us all three out of the water. So uh, Joan Ryan, really appreciate you taking the time to, to be with us. Uh, we're going to talk about your new book, Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and the Soul of Team Chemistry. I know I'm excited, so I'm going to kick it to Pat and Andy to, uh, to take it from here. I'll go to Pat since a lot of this focuses on the San Francisco Giants, and he has a fantastic relationship with the team and Joan. So, Pat, you're up. So, so Joan, a lot of interesting things about this book. First of all, it took you 10 years to do it. You know, I want to talk about, you know, how do you stay on some kind of a project for 10 years? And what is it about about team chemistry? Because it's sort of a mystery in a way. And I think, at least the way I, when I read the book, I sort of, it, it sort of was a mystery to you as you were sort of searching you know, for 10 years to, to figure it out. And you, you dedicated the book to our buddy, Mike Kruko. So let's sort of start there. Why did, why did you dedicate it to Mike? Well, anybody who knows Mike, and I hope everybody who's listening to this has had the pleasure of listening to him over the years and, you know, even watching him pitch for the Giants, the Cubs. Um, you know, as you said, 10 years is a ridiculously long time to work on, on one thing. And I did write the book with Benji Molina during that, but I was always gathering, you know, as we say in the business, you know, gathering strength for uh, team chemistry. And it was really triggered um, by that 1989 team in which Mike Kruko, you know, was the heart and soul even when he ended up on uh, the, the DL and was sitting on the bench, I think he still had as much influence um, there than he did when he was actually on the playing field. And so I attended this 20th reunion of that 89 team that won the pennant. And of course it was the earthquake world series and they, you know, were swept by the A's Andy. And I know you were very happy about that, but uh, on the other side, not so much. Um, and when I walked around that tent, that party tent in 2009, you know, and these middle-aged guys are all there, you know, from that 89 team, you know, which if anyone remembers, I, you know, I always refer to them as this junk drawer of a team that shouldn't have ever had any kind of connection with each other, much less influence each other enough to you know, have them overperform. And, and you can just tell they loved each other. And so as I'm walking around that tent and listening to the conversations and looking in their eyes, they still loved each other. And so I started to think, and this was post, you know, just post Moneyball and all the analytics. I was like, you know, I get why people, um, you know, sort of question this whole thing about team chemistry. It just seems like it's a, you know, something we kind of make up, you know, for any team that overachieves. So I started thinking, I was like, well, does it exist? And if it exists, well, then what is it? And then, you know, the key, of course, is then how does it affect performance? And then so through those 10 years, as I was doing this research and doing 150, 160 interviews, 
I got lost in the forest a lot. <laughs> I was like, no, <laughs> what, is, what am I supposed to be accomplishing here? And literally, I would conjure Mike Kruko's face and hear his voice, and it would remind me, this is team chemistry, and let's figure out how somebody like Mike Kruko had an impact on, on his team so profoundly. Well, so, but some of the people you talk to, uh, I remember some of them, you know, they don't believe in team chemistry. Mm-hmm. They kind of sc- they scoffed at the idea. They said, no, 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 it's talent. You know, team chemistry is overrated. So I could see that, you know, when you run into somebody like that, you kind of go, kind of stops you in your tracks. Mm-hmm. But, um, but it, it's, you, you know, I think we should really also talk about the, the elements of team chemistry because it not only applies to a team, but it applies to, you know, can apply to business, to a company. I mean, you describe, maybe we can get you at some point to describe the seven types of sort of characteristics that make up uh, at least one form of team chemistry. But, but what, what was it that kept you going? Why did you keep going? Well, like you said in the beginning, and I think, you know, you really nailed it, that it was this mystery that I was trying to solve and hoping that there would be an answer, at, you know, at the end of it. And I wouldn't come up with, oh, actually, it doesn't exist, you know. And, and in fact, it is it, now that I look back on it, it's almost sort of common sense. You know, like we've all experienced it, even if we don't call it team chemistry. You know, I mean, I remember the first job I had at the Orlando Sentinel newspaper, and I was in the sports department there. And my goodness, you know, th- there was a, a tightness to that that group and we were all so different I was the only woman in there and it was the old guys with young guys and 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 there was something about how we all connected with each other and we were so excited really to go to work and we hung out after we put the newspaper to bed and and I know the product was better for it and there were there have been studies, and that, that's one reason I was really excited to be on, on your podcast, because so much of it is about the business, about, you know, off-the-field chemistry. And there's this one great study, I mean, there's so many great studies, this one great study, and I don't know if you remember, Pat, reading about it, but at a, a Bank of America call center, right? And, and this one team at the call center, you know, just, you know, were not doing very well, the manager was just on how he could get the productivity up. And so he called this MIT professor who kind of studies these kinds of things, brought him in, and he and his graduate students, you know, hung these sort of sensor badges around everybody on this guy's team. And it basically recorded all the data of who they talked to, where they went, you know, everything, right? How much time they did this. And then they analyzed it all to look at, you know, what effects out was that th- this informal interaction they had with each other, the people that kind of took coffee breaks together or whatever, that that had as much impact on productivity as all other factors like intelligence, personality, skill, the sub- even the substance of the discussion combined. So this MIT professor suggested to this manager, hey, why don't you have your entire team, instead of taking staggered coffee breaks, have the entire team take coffee breaks together. And the, and the manager's like, all of, our, all of our people are going to be away from their phones 
to take his coffee break. He said, give and Well, productivity soared because now all of these, these, I'm calling them players, but they're not players. These employees felt like they were part of a team. They could talk to each other about, you know, stuff at work. They could talk to each other about their, their own lives. And so then B of A put this in all their call centers across the country. And productivity, you know, went up everywhere, and then it was it was replicated in other places. And I bring that up to say, like, on a team, like in a clubhouse or a locker room, you know, the foundation of team chemistry is relationship and connection. And that's about trust, and it's about caring, and it's about being completely committed to purpose. And how? And then the question is, like, in this call center, well, how do you foster that? Well, you have to give people a chance to, to develop that kind of trust and caring and shared purpose. Um, so that's really the fact. And, of course, you know, the way our brains are wired and it's just human nature for us to want to connect. Joan, one of the areas that jumped out to me is the incredible um, interviews that you did with leading scientists. And if we put analytics and metrics aside for a moment, you don't hear Major League Baseball and MIT, Harvard, think tanks, the Rand Corporation, et cetera. Baseball and all sports is based upon a lot of BS and gut feel. How did you basically juggle all these balls with Mensa-type <laughs> intelligence and sport, which is spitting in a cup? <laughs> How did you do that, and what was the tug of war that you had to deal with as you were spending this decade getting this book I written? I know, I know. It's a, it's a good question, Andy. And I think that, you know, the skills, frankly, that I developed in interviewing players and coaches in sports, because, you know, the truth was, you know, I never set out to be a sports writer. Like, I didn't grow up saying, oh, my God, I want to, you know, I didn't collect baseball cards. I wasn't sitting in front of the TV watching every game. Like, that wasn't who I was. And so when I started to cover sports through a series of circumstances, you know, I fell in love with the people, right? And, it, you know, I just told stories about people who happened to play sports. And so there was a lot I didn't know. And so I'd have to be that person who was asking that basic question <laughs> about, you know, well, why do you do that and how do you do that? And then ask the follow-up question and the follow-up to that and the follow-up to that until I actually understood it. And that's what I did with the scientists as well. You know, just start from what made sense to me and then just keep digging and digging and digging. And, you know, God knows I... I don't understand all of it, and I, I don't think I ever really wrapped my arms around this huge concept of team chemistry because it plays out in so many different ways. But what kept me going really was it was so fascinating. I mean, I went through 30 books on this stuff, you know, from organizational psychology to neuroscience to evolutionary biology, and I couldn't wait to – I mean, I loved all of that. And then trying to then fold in the examples from the clubhouse rooms and see, well, you know, how are these talking to each other, right? You know, what am I observing and learning in these clubhouses and locker rooms 
that now I've learned what's underneath it, like what's driving that behavior. Why are they playing better? And so it was just, you know, the most fascinating um, treasure hunt uh, um, I've ever been on. And I, I have an apology. I have an apology to make on behalf of life in the front office. So you have Gallagher, who I think might have graduated from junior high school. I'm not sure. And Hirschman and Dolish, who went to Ohio University Sports Management School. But the one person that should be on this call who teaches sports business at Caltech is Fred Clare. How did we blow that? So I apologize, Joan. I'm the head of the group. Hey, hey, Joan. You know, part of it when you when you in these interviews, you know, you kind of wade into a into a, a sports clubhouse or locker room. You know, you've you've got participants who many of them are, are immediately on the defensive. You know, there's, there's so much hubris and and testosterone in in those settings that you know to sort of get somebody to become candid. I was really fascinated with your sort of the the. <laughs> how you eventually lassoed guys like Barry Bonds to, to sit and talk about uh, team chemistry. I mean, you know, he, he's one of the guys that has so much talent, but some people think that having that much talent and, and, and in some cases, arrogance can, can, can be bad for team chemistry. And you, you came up with these, these, uh, uh, you, you called him a super carrier. And then there was other people you said super disruptor. So talk, talk a little bit about that, about the, 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 the things that all of a sudden jumped out at you that were yeah. um, to help define what it is. Right. And that was one of the, you know, one of the, the great, um, you know, pleasures of the book was finding that some of my own assumptions about these things were totally wrong. So like Johnny Gomes, um, who people may know from, you know, playing at the A's and, um, you know, he was a journeyman player 11 years, bounced around 11 years in the league. And, but his, you know, a pattern emerged that his teams won. And so I really looked into that, like what effect, you know, like that's kind of the John Jones effect. So he is my super carrier. And I kind of knew that going into the book. And I assumed my super carrier, my super disruptor was Barry Bonds. I mean, I covered him at the Giants. I saw, you know, just, you know, the arrogance and the dismissiveness and, and really, you know, the isolation and, you know, even with staff, it wasn't just media. And sometimes even his teammates, you know, the way he treated them. And only to find out, as I interviewed teammate after teammate and coaches and, you know, all the rest of it, they said, no, you know, he was not a clubhouse cancer. He was not a super disruptor. And I, of course, then need to find out, well, why didn't he disrupt that team? And I needed to find out what it looked like through Barry Bonds' eyes. You know, now I had his teammates and, and men to talk to Barry Bonds. And the combination of, of talking to all of them was that Bonds was sort of the baseball version of Steve Jobs or even kind of like a Sherlock Holmes, you know, like these people that are savants in their narrow field. And like Steve Jobs was not a pleasant human being, treated people horribly. Most people didn't like him who worked with him, but he was, he, he contributed obviously so much to that company and to what everybody's shared purpose was that you were like, okay, Steve Jobs does his thing 
and we accept that this is the price we pay for his genius, really. And that's exactly Barry Bonds. Barry Bonds truly is a genius at the plate, a genius. And he has the personality <laughs> of someone who has that kind of genius who don't necessarily have very good social skills. I mean, he has horrible social skills. He has very little empathy. You know, he doesn't get how other people are feeling when he's behaving or, or talking in a certain way. And, you know, one of the real interesting things that I found in trying to see it through his eyes was he said, you know, I never understood why I got so much flack for, you know, the Barca lounger and having my own masseuse and getting the chef and all of those things that, you know, everybody looked at me like, you know, I'm this diva and I just want to lord over everyone and, and, and I said, well, well, what was all that about? And he said, I was getting older, you know, and having that Barca lounger so I could rest, um, you know, before the game. I needed my rest. The masseuse was helping my body stay, you know, way I can. And I got the chef in my, in my uh, contract. And, of course, the chef is, you know, preparing food for everybody. And he thought, well, that's helping my teammates. He said, everything I did was so that I could be as prepared as I could possibly be to put on the best show, you know, and be as competitive as I could be for the fans of San Francisco. And he said, it didn't make sense to me that people were making fun of me. And he said, look at what the Giants have now. They have sleeping beds. They have like four masseuses. They've got two chefs. <laughs> and he said, you know, and yet I was vilified for that. And it made total sense to me once you kind of see it how he saw it and said I didn't have time to play cards with those guys why am I going to play cards with guys why am I going to sit around and bullshit with guys you know it's I was I was getting ready for the game I'm like okay Joan Joan when you when you think about and this is kind of an interesting anecdotal piece to add is in that uh, you know I played in I played baseball in college and then you know you have you know plenty of teammates and friends that go on and you know, play in the minors and, and some get to the big leagues. And, you know, it's interesting to hear a couple pieces of, of, you know, evidence from them and that, you know, when they're in the minor leagues, it's like there is no team chemistry to some extent in a lot of, you know, the, the, the organizations, because it's a dog eat dog world. You're trying to get to the top. You're trying to make it to the big league club. You're trying to make your money. You're trying to get your contract. Right. And so, you know, one of the comments to me was, man, I wish I was just still back in college. Because the team chemistry was there, right? You were going to school, you were playing for everybody on your team that you were practicing with every day. And it wasn't about anything else other than trying to, you know, win a, win a championship and get as far as you can. And then what you observed at the big league level is entirely different because to some extent, when the money's then irrelevant for some guys, it doesn't matter, right? All they want to do is win and then they become right. a team player. So what are some of the, the, the observations that you had maybe with, with that in mind of, of the difference between college, minor leagues? and Yeah, and I pros? think you're right on there, Jake, on that for sure. I mean, if you don't have a really clear shared goal, and so, yes, you know, every big league team wants their farm system to do well and they like to have those championships, but, yeah, that's not going to get you to the big leagues. You're right. It's individual statistics. But – at the same time, you know, everybody's looking for that team player as well. 
And also, I, we have a longing to belong to tribes, right? We have a longing to belong to teams. And so when you do get to the major leagues, yes, you know, you want to make that money. You want to get the big contract. But at the end of the day, you know, the great teams know what the military has known for, you know, ever since there was the first army in that day in and day out, right? I mean, baseball, got 162 games. No, you know, no lofty purpose, even a, even a World Series. Um, no amount of money can keep you motivated every single day you go there. It just doesn't, it, you know, we're not wired that way. So what the military well, so, so- knows is that you need motivation closer at hand, and that's each other. And every so, oh, go ahead, Pat. Sorry. No, no, no. I, I, I just want to. This is so fascinating because so if you're a manager of a team that you know you're judged as a manager by uh, by how you know the wins and the losses. Yeah. You're sort of judged. You're not a participant. You can't go out and get dirty. You can just sit there and watch guys. How as a manager do you? How do you make? How do you contribute to team chemistry? Yeah. How do you recognize it? I mean, we've all seen, you know, I mean, probably one of the best at it, Dusty Baker and yeah. Tony Larusa were, were, were two different type of a guys, different sort of approaches. But it, it, describe sort of how does a manager, mm-hmm. how does a manager uh, contribute to to team chemistry, yeah. to recognizing it? And you know, uh, here's where I came out on this, and you know, of course, that that can change as I learn even more. I think what leaders, you know, managers and, and other leaders do is, is really create a trusting, caring, committed culture, right? So, and culture and team chemistry are, are two different things. I think only the players really can create the team chemistry, but the managers have to create a culture in which, and I'm thinking about Dusty Baker, since you raised, raised, raised his name. He accepted, and Roger Craig, Bruce Bochy, you know, the the great managers do this. They accept the players for who they are to the team. You know, so maybe out in the world, you know, that wouldn't be your favorite human being. But what that, who that person is in that clubhouse and on that team, that person's accepted. And they know they're accepted. And they know they're trusted, right? And if you are trusted, that I trust that you're going to prepare. I trust that you're 100%. I trust that you're in it, you know, as deep as I'm in it. When you trust people, they become, or they're likely to become, trustworthy, right? So then they trust in return. Now, trust, as I said, trust and caring are kind of that foundation to allow chemistry to flourish. So now if you have these guys that are committed to each other, and every day, you know, they're, they're pushing each other. They're holding each other accountable. You know, they're having some fun together. And it becomes this sort of, um, you know, give and take. Uh, it almost becomes, and I, you guys have been in enough clubhouses to know this, it becomes almost a gravitational force in there where the players are, you know, it, that it bends the players toward each other. Not the coaches. The coaches, managers have nothing to do with this. It's all about the players. So the gravitational pull, you know, the gravitational pull, they're bending these players toward each other and toward 
this this common purpose that they have in their head like we are going to do this really difficult thing and it's just us just the guys in here we are going to do this together and it's a singular pleasure that we've all had if we've been a part of a team of being part of that team that then just continues to reinforce itself and reinforce itself as the season goes on and so the manager creates a culture in which that can grow. It's like that famous saying, you know, like, um, you know, gardeners don't grow tulips. <laughs> you know, they, they tend, mm -hmm. they plant and tend the garden so the tulips can grow. And that's a manager, right? You just plant this garden and you tend to them and tend to them and tend to them and let the tulips grow. Joan, to, Joan. to that point. Um, we live in a digital deluge today of which the word secret pretty much doesn't exist. What's your take on the future ability of all of these constituencies, let's just talk about sports, to create team chemistry when everything is out there for everybody to comment on? In some ways, I think teams can use that to their advantage, meaning that they have to be a, a super <laughs> – just us team. I mean, they have to be so tight that there's always secrets in clubhouses. And so they have to keep that inside and really enforce that. And I think it's Warren Bennis who said, you know, great teams are islands, you know, are island groups, you know, great groups are island groups. And, and to create that kind of knowing that the media and everybody else is trying to, you know, you know, tick, tick, tick away little bit and that little bit and just say no we are just us in here and it's only about us. so you you believe that it could enhance the concept of team chemistry as opposed to maybe the logic that no, it would know, dissipate it and, and god help the guy who betrayed uh -huh. it because it's more important than <laughs> ever to be close and keep what happens in the clubhouse in the clubhouse. I never understood that, really. I was like, God, guys, you know, relax. And I'm like, no, man, those guys have to have to be there on their own, by themselves, with each other, to really get that, that team chemistry that elevates performance. You know, we, we've all seen teams that, uh, you know, that all like each other, have great team chemistry, and can't win ball games for some reason. And and so those those teams don't stay together very long, you know. I also managers uh, who are disciplinarians, you know. In some cases, I guess that's that takes. But but to have have the sort of wisdom, like I, I, I'll single out Dusty to not make a big deal out of yeah. the fact that you know Barry didn't go and stretch with the guys. Yeah. He, everybody else had to go out and stretch every day, but Barry didn't have to do it. And from reading the book, not only did he permit that. But it seemed like most of the other players sort of understood and accepted that. They do. You know, going back to what, what I said before, you know, that, that Dusty was, was great. You know, it, when he came, when um, Barry Bonds came over, you know, he had to bring some players into his office and say, look, you know, I can see you're kind of chafing at this, but here's the deal. And, and Dusty had seen it with Hank Aaron you know, when he was with the Braves. And he said, you know, there's a different set of rules for these guys, and there needs to be a different set of rules for these guys. So get over it. You know, Barry is who he is. He, he contributes a ton to the team. And you guys create your own chemistry, you know. And, and just to, uh, you know, clarify one thing, like um, teams that get along 
don't necessarily have chemistry. You know, they just have camaraderie. And that's different. Like team chemistry is, you don't have team chemistry unless your performance improves, your productivity goes up. And so it may still mean you don't win. You know, you can have team chemistry and not win, but your performance is better than it has been, right? You know, you're getting better. You're getting closer to where you want to be because chemistry can't create talent, you know? Talent is always going to drive a team and chemistry amplifies the talent you have. Joan, I, I, I'll jump in in that this is a very interesting example as you're explaining this because I was part of two high school state championship teams and um, without naming any names, you know, we were very much uh, a group of guys who didn't necessarily get along together that well, but the mm-hmm. team chemistry was through the roof. We were very talented, but we didn't have good leadership, and we all knew that. But then we still went out and won back-to-back years and and with two different groups of guys. And so I find that fascinating in that, you know, to your point earlier about having that manager, that leader that creates a culture, is it possible for the, t- for the team to, without a leader, set Absolutely. the culture from a team chemistry standpoint? in the clubhouse, to me, that's more important than good leadership in the manager's office because those guys are around each other every minute of every day, right? And they're the ones holding each other accountable. They're the ones, you know, uh, boosting somebody's, you know, feelings about themselves and, and, you know, like, hey, you're just the guy we need right now to do this. And you're like, okay, you know, I'm ready to go. So I agree. You have to have good good leaders. And Tony LaRusso, you know, when he talked to me about team chemistry, he was like giving a TED talk. You know, I mean, he, he understood like every single thing. And he was speaking in paragraphs and outlines and, and everything. Chemistry, as Tony could do, he's a lawyer in him. And he said, you know, having great leaders in the clubhouse is the key to it all. And those great leaders have to buy into the manager's vision as well. So you have the manager and those leaders on on the same page. You really have something going that will lift the team beyond its talent. You can be appointed a leader. I mean, they emerge. They just emerge naturally. You know, Yadier Molina, obviously, you know. Like, he was always going to be a leader. He's always been a leader. But, you know, I don't think a manager can say, hey, you're my leader, and then you're my leader, too. You know, no. Only the team can decide who they're willing to follow. Joan, as as you think about, you know, you've got, you know, Andy and Pat here who have both, you know, uh, done tremendous things in the industry from a business standpoint. And as you think about how, look, there there are – uh, parallels between the player side and the business side, no doubt about it. And so when you think about the the research and the studies that you've done with, with this book, how does it pertain to the business side uh, for those who, you know, Pat, you were a part of essentially team chemistry for 30 years, right? And then Andy, you, you were a part of a bunch of different team chemistries, probably some good, some bad. So when you think about how it, how it translates as well to the business side, what, well, what do you I have think on as, that, a, on as that a leader, for sure, I mean, trust is huge, right? You, we need to, you know, and that's what was great about Bruce Bochy and, and you know, with Andy and, and Pat and their respective front offices, that, you know, people need to know that what you say is true and real and, and you're going to follow, follow through with that. You're also, I think it's hugely important in the clubhouse or in the front office 
for leaders to recognize what they have in their employees, you know, in their individual employees. So, you know, somebody, you know, just like the Johnny Combs, you know, he's batting 242. Well, he's worth more than that. His value is much higher than that. So in a front office, you know, the way people work, you can see who are the people that are making other people better. You know, and if you think of a factory of all these machines and it's like, okay, what it, would it be worth if you had one machine in there that made all the other machines be more productive? <laughs> that machine would be worth a lot of money, right? Even if that machine itself wasn't the highest producing machine. So for leaders to understand, and that's where my archetypes come in, you know, to say, oh, now I recognize that this person is filling this really important role for the group. You know, he's not just joking around and, you know, he actually is having an impact on the productivity of our group and pulling people together and, and getting everybody on the same page. And so, and I'd be interested to hear what Andy and Pat have to say about that, you know, the importance of how do you value, you know, it literally put a value on individual employees? Well, I, you know, I, I would, an observation that, that you know, I probably can see it better now than I could when I was sort of in the middle of it is that, and sometimes when you're, when you're working together with a group, sometimes, you know, the best ideas don't always come from the same people. And also people tend to, tend to not want to let each other yep. down. Everybody goes through certain vulnerabilities in, in, in life and with certain types of ideas. Everybody struggles at certain yep. times. In my observation is that when it seemed to really work is it was folks who tended to pick each yep. other up um, and they weren't necessarily told right. to do that. It was just part of it. And, you know, part of it was just not, let, not wanting to let somebody else yep. down. You could either be a good team team leader, or you could be a good exactly. team member. Exactly. Exactly. And when you care, uh, you care as much about what the person next to you is doing and thinking and what that person has invested. And you're, you have to be just as invested because, you know, you care, you know, you want to, you want to be as good as that person thinks you are. <laughs> you know what I mean? What their expectation <laughs> is. No, I, I'm with you 100%. My perfect example literally comes from the bathroom. Um, when I was at the Niners, uh, Jim Mercurio, who was the stadium operations guy, I said, hey, Jim, bring the team in that basically goes to all the bathrooms during the game and keeps the toilets uh, from overflowing. And it was about an hour before the game, and this team comes in with their Roto-Rooter stuff and all that, and they're going, oh, my God, we're going to get fired. And basically, I gave each of them a significant tip, 100 bucks, and the team was like six guys. A half an hour later, hundreds of people who are most important to presenting a game, and Pat knows this and Jake knows this, it's not just the team on the field. It's the hundreds or thousands of people in the parking lot, security concessions. That went viral before you could go viral. And I saw more smiles and more people wanting to figure out how they could come into my office and get a tip. But literally, that showed me what teamwork could be all about. That right. Nobody ever thought of those guys for decades. 
and and boom, it, it worked for hundreds, you know if not what, thousands you know, of other obviously people. It's not about the hundred bucks. It's about that Andy Dolich sees us. He sees us. We think we're just working out there and nobody sees. And now we know they see us. That's huge in everything, isn't it? You know, we all want to be seen for what we contribute. And that's what you showed in, in doing that. And nothing is better than that. It's not the money. You know, they're not working that hard for their money. They're working because they feel valued now, right? Yeah. Right. Joan, as, as we wrap up this episode, and we definitely, are we doing I, I can say, when are we so, doing part two? Can we, I was going to say part yeah. two, we, we can certainly do part two. Um, and, and I think that, you know, the archetypes uh, are, are certainly, you know, fascinating. Uh, obviously there's, there's probably a question from everyone. And, and I'll ask this in that you're, you've, you've authored five books. Um, when, when, when Andy and I or, or, or someone else gets, you know, asked the question of, uh, well, how did, how did you write a book or, or why, or, or, you know, what does it take? Right. What's, what's your answer to that? Because, uh, it's, it's one of those things where you, you kind of scratch your head every time and you're like, yeah, I, I did do that. Uh, it took a while, right. Um, it, it wasn't the prettiest and, and most glamorous God, process. Can, can you shine some light on that? Every time I write a book, I'm absolutely miserable. And I wonder, what was I thinking every time? Now, with this one, I loved all the research. I could have just researched until I dropped dead, you know. But at some point, you know, I had a deadline, which I missed by two years. But, you know, that I, I have to start writing it, which is, which is really hard. But I think the only reason I write books is because I'm driven to do it. Like, I, I, I have an idea that intrigues me and then I just plunge in and want to figure it out and want to keep learning and learning and learning. Right. And that's what drives you. And, um, and then once you have all this research, you're like, well, I better write the book now. You know, I have all this research, but I hate, I hate writing a book. And this is my last one. I mean, I'm saying this publicly. I am never writing another book. And so miserable. (laughs) <laughs> the Joan Ryan number sticker. Yeah, this was the right. book that okay. finished Joan off. Yeah, this was it. I should have, you know, I should have stopped. You know, after the first one. After the first one, I said, Barry, if I ever, and that was 25 years ago. I said, if I ever talk about writing another book, just lock me in a room until I get over it. And then you find something, and it's like, oh well, you know, I can do that one. You know, but I don't know. There are people I know who love writing books, and I don't get it at all. <laughs> Well, this is that's that's exactly how this podcast came into inception is is the four of us go, man, we should write a book on sports careers and how to get into sports and all the different lessons you learn. And, and I was like, man, guy, that, I that's said, there's no way I'm really doing long it. time. Too hard. That's... <laughs> and, and, so, and so life in the front office became life in the front office. And oh, my God, and lions and tigers and bears. Yeah, Let's not do that. Now. You know, not that it matters to anybody else, but, you know, just try to promote the thing. I mean, I'm really happy with how it came out. I really worked hard on it. You know, so I, I'm very, very happy with the product. I would never put myself through that again, but I'm happy with how it turned out. 
but now it's like, how do you market it and promote it? You know, especially during this pandemic and there's gazillion books coming out at one time. And, you know, who cares about this one? You know, so it, the whole thing is just like, why does anybody yeah. do this? <laughs> Yeah, but you know what, Joan, there's there's a lot of self-help books out there, and there's a lot of people who tell you what you ought to think and what you ought to do, whatever. But the thing about intangibles that, at least to me, was was so interesting is that, yes, it was a book that sort of started in sports, but if you, if you sort of, you know, throw a, a pebble in the pond and see how the ripples go out on how it affects business, I think this is a, a great business, a great business book. I've told you, I think, you know, you ought to summon, if, if writing a book is hard, doing a TED Talk is maybe harder in a yeah. different way and scarier. But, but on the other hand, if you take, take a, a look at the ingredients that you sort of outlined, the seven types that it takes, I think the application of this is really valuable for anybody who's trying to figure it out because team chem chemistry sometimes is easy mm -hmm. to see but it sure is difficult to create and make it right. happen. And if you understand, I think what the book does um, best really is to allow people in, in every kind of uh, organization, business, team, whatever it is, to understand the foundation. Like what is team care? What, is, what are the dynamics that are happening? And then you have to apply it to your own specific team. Like, you know, anybody who says, oh, here's the 10 steps to, you know, creating team chemistry. No, here are maybe the 10, you know, foundational elements of team chemistry. But it really is, you have to figure out how to apply them to your specific situation. And it's a, and it's a kind of a, a challenging, fun, you know, mind exercise to really brainstorm with your leadership team on, okay, Let's think about this, about our specific team. You know, what do we know? What do we need to know? And so that's where I think it could be, you know, really applicable to, to any group or team. Joan, I'm, I'm, I'm going to jump in and, and, and end the episode in that there are a couple things I'll mention here, which hopefully give our listeners enough <laughs> to want to listen to episode number two. Uh, one, we're going to have Fred Clare on to discuss his uh, adventures with the 1988 team and how he jumped right into a, a team chemistry that had to be either created or, or fixed, right, to win. That might be your next book. A bunch book. of bastards, a bunch of battered <laughs> bastards from those Dodgers. Son of a and, and then And then the second, the second part is, you know, uh, as Andy can attest to, you know, all the all the different logos that he's had on his business cards and, and the different front offices he's worked in, you either build a team chemistry over X amount of years or you're jumping into one that's already mm -hmm. built and you got to figure out how to fit yourself in that team chemistry um, or 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 uh, in some words or shape or form that, that's been said <laughs> before on this podcast to stay out of the way. Right. So. Uh, Joan, really appreciate all the thoughts, advice, insights on, on intangibles, unlocking the science and, and soul of team chemistry. Looking forward to, to episode two. And Andy, Pat, Jenny, thank enjoy, you. enjoy as always. Uh, thank you. Uh, it's been great. I would also say book Johnny on episode two and three. And let's make sure before episode two, we have Barry Tompkins on so that we can really find out 
uh, about team chemistry. And what I got most out of intangibles is that when I finished yeah. the book, it was tangible to me. And that is incredible. So congratulations, Joan. We appreciate your time with us. Talk about it and asking, you know, such, such great questions. And I hope we can do it again.